Welcome to the Future Perfect Podcast, where we talk with compelling people breaking new ground in art, media, and entertainment. This podcast is produced by Future Perfect Studio, an extended reality studio creating immersive experiences for global audiences. Episodes are released every two weeks. Visit our website, futureperfect.studio, for more details. I'm Wayne Ashley, founder and creative director of Future Perfect. This week, we interview Nick Fortuno, co-founder of the New York-based game studio Playmatics and designer of numerous digital and non-digital projects, including board games, collectible card games, large-scale social games, and theater. Hey, Nick, welcome to our podcast. Oh, great to be here. Really excited to dig into some of your background ideas, uh, your concepts and projects, and particularly your vision for at least one alternative for the future of theater. I see you as a catalyst, a kind of cultural interlocutor making links across different forms of knowledge and practice. And the work you've done really attests to this. For decades now, you've designed video and board games, as well as outdoor public games. You're the co-founder of Playmatics, a New York game studio, and the lead designer on many theater works, including Frankenstein AI and The Raven. And of course, one of the lead creators of the downloadable blockbuster video game, Diner Dash. But first, I want to go back a bit. Your cousin introduced you to role-playing when you were quite young, and then you ran your first game of Dungeons and Dragons at six years old. Is it too much to assume for me to assume that role-playing has been and may still be one of the most critical activities for you, if not a central organizing practice leaking into everything you do. Give us a sense of how role-playing has activated much of your thinking and practice. I, I think a central organizing principle is like a good way of thinking about it. It doesn't inform all of my work in a literal sense, but it's the heart of how I think about aesthetics is, you know, in, in Dungeons and Dragons, essentially what you do is you tell stories with other people and you use a rule system to adjudicate disagreement, right? Like you have a lot of, I hate, you No, you didn't stuff in role-playing. So you need rules to do that. And that when you storytell in that system, right, when you're the person responsible for making the story, you don't, like storytell the way you do in other forms where you have an idea of the story in your head and you're figuring out how to implement it in a way that will affect the audience. The, the protagonists, like the players, are interacting with you and they're just changing it constantly. And so you don't know where the story's going. You have ideas of where you could go. You have ideas of what you might want to happen. You might pull some things in, but you're really in this collaborative process. And so this idea of improvising, this idea of using systems to generate things, and this idea of being responsive to the interactions of other people, um, that is very much at the heart of my work. It's how I teach. It's uh, how I think about storytelling centrally. And it's like informs a lot of my aesthetics. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I would not be the person I was today if my, my cousin Joey didn't teach me D&D &D in Glen Allen's Illinois. Yes. 
You're also a, a prolific researcher, <clears throat> not only of games, but literature, theme parks, new technologies and performance. And here I'm thinking about a, a previous discussion we had where in one breath, you mentioned cultural forms that most people would never bring together in the same conversation. The list is long, but indulge me here. The British theater company, Gob Squad, Galaxy Edge at Disneyland, Harry Potter Hotel, the theater collective booster group, the blockbuster event, Sleep No More, the novels of Joyce and Pynchon, Evermore Village in Utah, and the epic video game Elden Ring. This cluster that you brought together in our first conversation excites me a lot because I think at Future Perfect, it's how we think as well in these kinds of clusters. What are the affordances, and this is a concept that you use, that enable you to think systematically across all these activities. Maybe you want to start by telling us what you mean by affordances. Yeah, so affordance is a concept from um, design thinking that comes from, you know, Donald Norman really popularized it. And it's the idea that a form has um, features about it that that lead to certain kinds of use, right? There are things that are that are intuitive in a way or natural in a way to come from a, just a form, right? Like if I put a handle in a certain place, you hold the handle and that changes your use of the device. And that um, that that idea that like that the forms start speaking to certain kinds of use cases is, is very central to thinking about interactive design because when you're a designer in those spaces, you make the affordances, right? Because you don't tell users what to do. You give them something and you have them do it. That's why it's interactive, right? Like it's it's not a roller coaster where I strap myself in and I just ride the rails that were put out in front of me. Um, it's it's a it's a theme park, right? Where there's just a bunch of stuff. But like, it's not like I go wandering off into the most boring part of the theme park, right? I go towards the lights, I go towards the sound, I go towards the interactive things and the design of that, right? The lights, the sound, like the things that attract me, the things that challenge me, the obstacles and the rewards, like all of that stuff moves me around in spaces, right? And so when I look at these different forms, and, I, and this is like central to the way I think about my practice, this, this is maybe like much closer to the center of my actual like day-to-day -day well, practice. And this is what yeah. has drawn me to the way you think and the way you work is because I have not found as many people like you who are willing to be so expansive in, in the way in which you make connections between things which are usually put in different categories. Yeah, and I think they're put in different categories because a lot of times, because there's two groups of people who are thinking about them usually. There's like specialized practitioners who are in the weeds on what they do, right? And so the difference is between like one immersive rod and another immersive rod and something like Disney World are, are what they do for a living every day, right? So their head is just so deep in those problems that they're not really looking outside of them very much. Or the audience, which is just honestly critically uninformed. It's not like they don't have real reactions. It's not like you're unresponsive to them or they're somehow like ignorant of the field, but they don't think about it critically. They experience it that way. Um, but what I see when I look at it critically is I see commonalities between these things. And the commonalities exist really at this almost interactive approach from the audience. Like I, as an audience member, am doing similar things in a lot of this work. Um, and the way that the work intersects with me 
is similar in a lot of this work. And so if that's true, then there are tropes to that, right? Like there are ways people use that to create aesthetic effects that are common. And if that's the case, then I can look at all of that work to learn those tropes and I can build a rhetoric out of them. So immersive theater and like, just take very strong examples, like immersive theater, like Sleep No More and an, an open world digital game like Elden Ring or Fallout have very similar um, affordances for users in terms of how you get around in them and how you how you consume story. And so I can play Fallout 4 and watch how story is revealed to me and then think about that in a physical space in a similar way. And even though if I built those things, I would use completely different production processes. When I think about it as a consumer of them, I actually see similar kind of thinking patterns, similar paradigms, similar decision paths, and that allows me to find tropes in one form that I can use in another. And so I think that as we start moving more into these like hybrid spaces, right, and like like very serious um, immersive theater is in that hybrid space already because you don't have an audience watching a proscenium anymore in those spaces, then I, I want to draw from more of those forms because we don't we don't have that many models for what these things are. And, and those models are disparate. Yeah. Let me go further into your background because you have a BA in graduate study in literature. And in our previous conversation, I think you saw an overlapping relationship between post-war American literature and the kinds of interactive narratives found in gaming structures. Do I have that right? Yeah, I got- Can you, can, can you say more about this connection? Again, I think in the other podcasts, I've been really, really um, interested in what brings really disparate people to this emerging hybrid area of interactive narrative, interactive performance, immersive experience. And they've come from dance, they've come from visual art, they've come from gaming, they've come from philosophy. I think you're one of the first people who have made this connection between, you know, people like Pinchon, uh, uh, James Joyce, et cetera, and, and, and a whole set of kind of interactive gaming structures. I'm curious about how you see more and can you say more about this connection? Uh, yeah, I, I basically, I, I got, when I got interested in literature deeply, like what got me was this sort of post-war, post-modernism approach, um, really, you know, like thinking 50s, 60s, 70s a lot. Um, but like, really, you could stretch it from like a, like a kind of Borgesian um, and then, you know, and Joycean and, and Steinian space up through the modern day, right? Because there's still authors like Ali Smith is still doing stuff like this. Um, you know, how to, how, to, how, to, how to repair your Volkswagen is still in this space, right? Um, but like when, when you look at like things like Pynchon and Nabokov in particular, right? Like when you start looking at their works, their works start becoming a little bit obsessed with um, interpretation, right? Interpretation becomes like sort of the center of the novel and the novels become kind of games about interpretations, so including not just them, but like more radical authors in that space like Pavish, like who are really like breaking down the sense of like what you're supposed to consume from the story because they're they're in a meta way thinking about the fact that you're interpreting them, whether it's, you know, like crying of Lot 49, like sort of asking you to like think about what communication systems are and then challenging you on like 
how do we interpret conspiracies that's also all over um, Foucault's Pendulum, which is Echo, right? Or, or a book like Lolita, which is like, like basically laughing in your face about your attempts to understand it. Um, or Pale Fire, right, for that matter, which is, I think, an even deeper experiment, right? Like, what you see over and over again is this idea that the, the novel is a game that the, that the reader is playing with the novelist. It's not a puzzle, right? You're not going to get the answer out of it. That's not the point. Um, and certainly postmodern poetry and people like Ashbery would argue that, like, if you got one meaning out of a poem, you didn't really read the poem anyway, right? And so the idea that, like, you're you're playing around with meanings and that the that the work becomes something that you as the audience have some ownership of because it is open to you, right? Because it is it is an ambiguous object that you have to work with. That got me, that, that just spoke to me in a certain way. Cause I think I was already just from role playing, like very used to the idea that like I participate in stories and like they come from this relationship with me and, and the text, whatever the text is. It's like exists in that, that kind of co-space. And so I don't like talking about interactive narrative. I think that's like a bad phrase because I think I'm always interacting with story, right? Um, I'm interacting with story just I have precedence for story, right? Um, so that's not new, right? What's new is is the types of affordances of interaction that I get from stories and like what the possibilities for changing those stories are and like how much the story is a fixed thing um, that I encounter and how much the story is flexible to my input. Um, and so to me, the literature study was partly just just giving me an outlet for stories and a place where stories can actually be quite experimental because like, you know, when you just write, it's cheap to make crazy worlds, right? It's like, it's the, it's, it's the same amount of, 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 of ink to write a crazy world as it is to write a realistic one. So you can go like very, very far with literature in a way that would be harder to do in something like film just because it's, you know, you have to shoot all that stuff. Um, but also the, the, the drive of novels from the, from the really like, the, the, the modernist period on has been like a drive towards more and more stylistic experimentation. And that has been really engaging to me because you, you start seeing it as almost a formal thing, right? You can look at it as like a structure and then you can like see that the structure is doing something, right? Like just the way that, I mean, and, and again, Ulysses' choices, Ulysses is an excellent example of that. Like each chapter is written stylistically differently and informally differently. There are chapters that are dialogues. There are chapters... Um, where the stream of consciousness changes radically, there are chapters that drift, right? And that's like part of the narrative, right? And and you can read like like you know if you go back to the the really crazy stuff like the Ulipo experimentation that like Calvino and um, and you know other like kind of French and Italian authors were doing, uh, Kino, right? Like like just literally experimenting with outlining, experimenting with you know creating that whole idea of branching trees. Um, you start to see that like, oh, there are patterns of structures of story that we can start to establish. And I think that, it, you know, that's the approach I take to this question of rhetoric, right? It's like exploration is a set of tropes, right? Um, branching is a set of tropes. That's like, and it's similar, whether you're doing something like branching in a YouTube video or branching in a choose your own adventure or branching in a game like Until Dawn. There, the branching is similar, right? It has similar tropes. And so we can just look at it structurally and say, well, what does the structure do? How do the choices in the design of the structure change things independent of content? And then what is the intersection between the content and the structure? And I think that's, I mean, I, I don't know if that's how a lot of people think about literature. I mean, that's like, because I because I read a lot of Nabokov and Finchin, I guess, but like, that's, that's what I'm thinking about when I think about that stuff. So it's interesting <clears throat> to think about 
the avant-garde, the experimental, um, at a certain moment in history, which sounds like from your description that these have leaked into or have become now part of the dominant way of constructing narrative, constructing certain kinds of popular culture and certain kinds of experiences within video games. That what was on the periphery has, in in a sense, tell tell me if if you disagree, that that those have kind of moved central and have become actually part of a kind of dominant culture and 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 part of an, an, an entertainment industrial complex. I, I think so because as you start moving into more dynamic uh, and particularly dynamically digitally dynamic work, although that spills back into the analog. Right. Like and especially as like Internet of Things and, and you know, like really um, like very, very, very reduced in size and cost technologies start coming back into the real world. You start seeing this there, too. But like when you start talking about more dynamic narratives, it starts to have to be structural. And this is like here I'm like riffing a lot on arguments in um, a book called Expressive Processing by uh, Wardrick Fruin and like. The thought of like, well, if I make a piece of work and, and this is just quoting Expressive Processing, what I'm doing right now, if I make a piece of work that that changes with every user to a different outcome, the output of that work is not really an analysis of that work, right? Because if the work has like 100,000 possibilities, one possibility is such a small segment of what it could be that, that it gives me information as a user, but I can't really critique the work from that perspective. I have to look at the structure because it's procedural, right? Like it's, it's not predetermined. And I think as we start moving into works that are like that, and since computers enable us to do that, right? That's what computers are good at is that kind of dynamic proceduralism. Then we start to see that like structural um, analysis and system design becomes more and more important because that becomes more and more the center. Right. And as it does, and we see the affordances that that has, we can start pulling those affordances into other forms where we see similar audience relationships. Right. So that like the question of like, how do we maintain um, the results of decisions you've made previous in experience? There are techniques in code to do that. Right. Like we track that in code. Right. right? Yeah. So so once we have an understanding of that, oh, hey, I can track something in code that someone did and inherit it forward to something in the future. So the future thing can respond to the things in the past that it had no experience of. And if I say it that abstractly, you could do that in the real world, right? Um, you just need some interfaces to allow people to do that. But once you can do that, then that starts changing forms, right? Because now I see a structure that I could have used before. So I don't think that does theater need this? Does film need this? Does installation need this? No, right? It doesn't need it. Like, you can make, obviously, and we have made thousands of years of good art without it, but the, the possibilities of the art change when you start seeing those things. Um, and that's why I think it's starting to, to permeate. I mean, digital games are a very, very big industry, and there's been a lot of really interesting storytelling in them. And, and I don't think all people who study this stuff know that because it's locked a bit behind barriers of, like, picking up a PS4 controller and, like, trying to get through it. Like, Shadow of the Colossus is one of the most important, um, I think, works of digital works ever made. Um, but not many people experience it because it's a really hard digital game, right? And and it has to be hard. That's like part of its aesthetic. Um, but like what we, but I think that the people who have bridged this are starting to see that, like, oh, I can inherit things from those forms into these other spaces, and that's just changing the way we think. And then you start to see work in the world that is just more procedural, right? That, that does just become more um, dynamic in its nature. And then when you, but when you do that, 
you know, you end up with stuff like LARP where you, you can't make LARP the way you make theater because I don't know what the players are going to do. So my scripts in a LARP can't be like a theater script. It doesn't make sense. I need a structure that will support 40 people running around doing random things. Got it. Yeah. Which brings me to um, wanting us to focus on theater, um, especially two participatory theatrical installations that you co-created. First, uh, Frankenstein AI, a monster made by many. Um, that was an AI-powered immersive experience that premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. And The Raven, which was performed as part of the Lincoln New York Film Festival in 2019. Tell us what audiences might have experienced when they participated in Frankenstein AI and what was the genesis of that work? Uh, yeah, so Frankenstein AI has had a couple of different forms. Its original form um, was a uh, kind of a, a, a small audience immersive experience where you came into a room and then you interacted with another audience member at a Surface computer that was like on, on a built into a table. Uh, and it was, uh, you was formulated as an artificial intelligence asking you questions about what it was to be human. And you're sort of marking values on the table using like a physical computing device that looked like a, it was like a Ouija like board. Like a Ouija board. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that's, that, that information was sent uh, to an AI, like an actual AI that was like in a cloud. It was used as the seed to determine a mood that the AI had. And then when you finished that exercise, you were brought into a room that was mapped with projections and um, IoT drums, right? Like, like procedurally played drums. And you would have a chance to talk to the artificial intelligence. The artificial intelligence would uh, generate a question and then it would be delivered in um, text-to-speech to the audience in the room. And then the audience room would direct the docent to type a question into a typewriter. And then that would be sent back to the AI. And this was all formulated as... There's this AI that's been created, it's escaped into the internet, and it is trying to understand what, what it is and what humanity is. And it's using the narrative of Frankenstein as like this thing that was created that doesn't understand its role as a seed to understand where it's going. And the whole thing was essentially a meditation on two things. Like one is this question of... Um, and, you know, this was the conversations that I had with like Lance Weiler and, and Rachel Ginsburg, who were the co-creators, uh, some of the co-founders of that project you know, about like what is AI and like what, what should we be worried about AI? And my big argument was that everyone worries about Terminator and what we should really be worried about is Kafka, right? Like that that AI is not, AI is not like a monster that takes us over. AI is a, a thing that doesn't understand us and then just acts procedurally in ways we don't understand, right? Um, and so this question of like, what are we training? This is around the time that, you know, like Microsoft had released an AI that became wildly racist. And like, you know, like we were we were thinking about, well, what does it mean that we're teaching AI what it is? And how could we make a piece that gets people to reflect on the idea that like, when we're engaged with artificial intelligence in the world, like we are training it, right? That's what CAPTCHAs do, right? Um, and like we're, we are going to teach AI what it does, Right. That and so if that's the case, what is our responsibility to that? And then that, the whole piece was kind of a meditation on that process. Um, yeah, it was a it, that that piece was I, I did the creative uh, design, creative technology design on that, and some of the interactive narrative design of like the sequencing of it. I'm very proud of that piece personally because it was the first piece of creative technology that I ever actually showed in a in an exhibit. It was a it was basically the the technology that connected all the devices. So it meant that when the AI changed mood, the projections changed, the drums changed, 
and it pulled the AI's response and then fed that into the speech to text and delivered it into the room. And so I basically did technology that connected the surface tables to the AI, to the projectors, to the drums. Um, and that was really nice because it was like a, a topic of research I've had for a long time about like how technology could be used to create these like kind of seamless connections between things. Because you didn't see anything happen. You just asked a question and suddenly the projections and drums changed. And that, I call that seamless technology, like technology that doesn't have clear lines where it connects. Um, and I think that could be a kind of magic. So that was important to me. And then there was a second part of Frankenstein AI that was similar, except it used a dance performance that was choreographed by Brandon Powers, um, where you know participation from the audience led a dancer to dance in different ways as it exhibited in a physical form the growth paths of an artificial intelligence, which, by the way, is like a lot of noise for a long time that suddenly becomes comes into form is the easiest way to think about that. So what did you learn from producing uh, Frankenstein AI that changed your approaches when you then began to develop the Raven? Well, like, what, yeah. Give yeah. us a sense of, of how the Raven works as an experience that grew from or built upon your kind of work with uh, Frankenstein AI. Yeah, so in the Raven, um, uh, basically the Raven was a like a, an immersive performance for a slightly bigger audience, um, where we like allowed an audience to come into uh, like into a, a, a that was the time the Irish um, American Historic Society, right. uh, and then um, that like they came in and they experienced a like a kind of like a, a magically real story of the Raven. Um, where people like traversed the space and then encountered, um, uh, you know, a raven performer, and then like talked about, you know, like like had had a you know like had had experiences with each other. But the center of the technology, the technology of the piece, um, uh, was that every user had a lantern they carried around with them that was an IoT device that was that, that was reading beacons in the space and then connecting to a central system. And they had a set of headphones that were playing audio for them. So most of the audio um, that, was, that was present in the piece um, came from the headset that was being played based on where they were and a character they were assigned by a prop they picked at the beginning of the piece. And so everyone was sort of playing a performer in the piece. And so the performer, Ava, Ava, uh, Ava Lee Scott, who was playing Poe and, and co-wrote the piece, um, was moving through the space as Poe meditating with these characters, but you were one of the people that Poe knew from Poe's life or Poe's creation. And so what we took from Frankenstein AI, what Lance and I carried from Frankenstein AI, um, was this idea that we could create a central technology system that was guiding all these users without having to like have actors on top of those users moving them around. And that the storytelling could really be based on their decisions because it was in part based on where you went and what you encountered. Um, what the, the, and the other thing that Frankenstein AI like taught me in a real sense was just that like these technologies could be stable, they could run, you know, Frankenstein AI had a server system. That's how it ran. It was like a server that was running on a yeah. small piece of technology called a Raspberry Pi. Uh, and we turned it on and we, on the first day when we were running it, we just like didn't turn it off just to see if it would stay up overnight. Like, you know, we it had been running for eight hours. We're like, oh, we'll just leave it up overnight. And when we come back, we'll see if it's still running fine. And then we didn't turn it off for two full weeks, right? It just ran nonstop for two weeks and it never broke, right? We never had to restart it. 
Um, And so that taught me, oh, these things are, can be made battle ready. I mean, we had to make it battle ready. There were like little things we had to do to make it work. Um, There were, there were very strange hiccups that happened with that kind of technology that if you, if you don't know how to fix them, that they can get you stuck for a while. But we were smart about that. There were a lot of really good creative technologists on that project. Um, and we brought that to Raven, like a similar kind of technology. And there were obviously different technical constraints to Raven and there were different bugs we were facing. But we went through a similar process of thinking about, oh, there can be a central system that's guiding this narrative. And if we do that right, and we have the right affordances to connect to the audience, that can take the place of a bunch of docents, a bunch of rules, a bunch of structures. People can just explore, right? And then through that exploration, they can... Um, they can like find story. Um, and I should say that like, you know, we worked, we were working with pretty robust technologies on that. So we were, we were in partnership with Microsoft and we were using like pretty heavy Azure servers and things like that, but it was not for heavy lifting stuff. It was for reliability of, of, you know, like of delivery of, of material. And then we built this like giant, this gigantic XML file that was like, the branching script of the entire piece so that we knew where people were and we could time like lights and sound cues and things like that. But I want to, <clears throat> I want to ask you something about this seamlessness and this kind of magic quality that you refer to, which in one way it's, it's, it's very seductive and very exciting, but it also hides. It's also hiding a certain kind of production of labor. It's higher. It, it's hiding a certain kind of politics of how these things work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a contradiction in that that I'm sure you think about a lot because I know that you're you're kind of critically responsible. But it, it, can you talk more about that kind of tension between? wanting to create magic and illusion at the same time wanting to be political or wanting to be critical and transparent? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think, well, I think there's a kind of experience that that magic provides of like surprise and wonder and awe that's just very powerful, right? And we don't want to lose that. And I think different forms manifest that in different ways, right? Theater, what theater does, I think better than anything is just like pure, pure like moment spectacle, right? Where like the evolution of a plot in theater can create a moment that's just stunning, right? Like it just stuns you on stage. And technology, it's, it's harder for technology to do that in a traditional way because we already expect technology to be magic, right? So like if I pick up my iPhone and I swipe and a door opens in the room, it doesn't really feel that weird to me. My brain has a, a way of understanding that. And if I, if, I, if I pick up my phone and I swipe and a robot arm opens the door, there's no magic at all, right? Like it's like I see all the, all the beads. Um, but if I pick up a stick and I wave it and the door opens... Um, I can't see that connection in my head. It's like, it's just kind of, it kind of looks like magic, right? Now, what's happening in the in the stick is probably the same thing that's happening in the phone. It's probably like exactly the same technology, right? But it doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't, act, the affordances just to use that, to use that kind of concept again, since we're in that space are different. Like I'm waving differently than I swipe on my phone. And all of that makes it feel different and magical. Now, that's a sleight of hand, right? It's like magic like in in the literal sense of like stage magic. And there are, I think, some questions of the ethics of of magic. Not that magic is unethical, right? But that magic has those same questions of like, am I deceiving you? And like, and like, like, do I want you to think hard about this? And magic plays in this super interesting tension of like- Especially in the age of deception, which we are all going through. (laughs) 
<clears throat> yeah, like so easy for that to, this to slip off a cliff, and like you and you need to know that, right? Like that, like I think, like you know, I, I don't believe art is good or bad. Art is a set of tools, right, that gets used, and so just like you know, you can you can make beautiful social justice films, right? But then you can, you know, <laughs> like we have a lot of history of bad film, right? Very yeah. famous, very, 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 yeah. you know, birth of a nation stuff, right? Yep. Um, you know, similarly, you can do this stuff with like, with like LARP or with an immersive theater or with games, right? I mean, that you can do, you can do very similar problems. I think what you're talking about with the transparency is, is, is interesting in these kind of spaces because, it becomes about the trust that the audience has in you and how much you are conscious of the fact that you are manipulating them and that they, they need to feel, they need to be safe, right? That's like non-negotiable. Like they have to be safe. You can't put them into actually dangerous situations, but you also do want them to be critical about things. And it sort of becomes an interesting question about like, you know, where do you want to show the curtain on the technology and where do you want the piece itself to be meditations on these questions? So in, in, you know, in Frankenstein AI and in a lot of the work we do in the digital storytelling lab, you know, that's where Lance and I, Lance Weiler and I do a lot of work. Like we typically just like drop the curtain at the end of the work and show you the tech when we're done, right? Because that's part of the nature of the aesthetic. I don't think you have to do that, but it's like, we're very open source. So we, we do that all the time. Yeah. Um, but I also think that the piece itself could ask questions that even if you're not showing the technology could ask you to meditate on those, on those ideas. And any piece about agency that's like, like really asking you to make hard decisions is talking about agency, right. And being critical about agency. So I think those are also spaces where these things can work. So what I find compelling about both of these projects <clears throat> is their capacity to posit alternative models for theater's future. They either directly or implicitly suggest that theater as we have come to receive it needs to be remediated or fixed for the purposes of this discussion can i make that assertion okay yeah yeah i will i will and also I, defend I, traditional theater but that's, that's fine. No, no 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 this is good what is it about certain kinds of theater that need to be remediated and how are your explorations moving toward that remediation uh okay so again with the caveat right sure um, absolutely <laughs> i think that well first of all that's why that's why yeah. i was very careful to say <laughs> you know alternative models or one mod i'm not i don't want i don't want you to generalize but absolutely and i think from our audience's perspective um people are going to ask that question well what what is wrong with the kind of theater that i do and why do i need these other systems why do i need these kinds of technologies uh what's wrong with the proscenium what's wrong all these kinds of things are implied for better or worse in the kind of work that you're proposing and the kind of research exciting research that you're carrying out yeah well i mean first of all there's just aesthetic possibilities that 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 are are very hard to create in, in a linear format like theater, right? Like guilt is hard to create in an audience, right? Triumph is hard to create in an audience because they don't do anything, right? Like, like these are emotions, like, like you can get to shame, but there's types of shame you can't get to, right? Like, so there's aesthetics that become possible just when like someone is culpable, when someone has the ability to achieve, right? Like that becomes kind of interesting. There's like games have lots of emotions attached to victory and failure 
that can be leveraged in all sorts of interesting, weird ways, right? And there have been pieces that have have you know escape uh, escape from privilege, escape of privilege. I can't remember what the name of that piece was, but like the escape room that was a meditation on on systemic bias, right? Like that's an interesting example of a piece of work where like. Uh, the designer was trying to use the affordances of games to demonstrate a problem in the world, right? And games typically do that. So like these are, that's one aspect I would say. It's like, there's there's just this like, there's just pure emotions that are inaccessible to linear media, I think, because there aren't affordances for the audience to access them, despite the diversity of emotions that these forms can create. The second possibility is that like, it, it's a question of like how you want to engage with your audience. I, as an artist, don't really like telling people stories like that doesn't really engage me like i want to tell stories <laughs> say, say more about that <laughs> nick because um you're like the second person we've interviewed who's talked um disparagingly about stories and storytelling say more about that yeah i mean like i you know i i don't mind being just blunt about this i'm not that interested in my biology i'm not that interested in my my um my history like i don't find those things that interesting i don't think i have like a vision of storytelling that's so powerful that like, you know, like some muse came to me uniquely and now I'm, the, the word of heaven is coming through my body or something, right? And this is the knock people who do, like there's geniuses who make that work, but that's not how I create. Like, that's not what I do. Like what I want is to like play with you, right? Like I wanna, I wanna be able to like engage with you and like, you know, like, like, like catch the ball you throw and throw it back. And, you know, this isn't altruistic, just to be really clear. I mean, I like doing that with people, but it's also really fun to, like, catch a bunch of balls coming at you in crazy directions and keep the whole thing on track. There's an artistry to that. That's that's what running an, R an RPG is. It's like throwing track in front of a, a moving train, right? Um, so I think that's really powerful, and you get things that you would never get otherwise, right? Similarly, the way that, like, if you jam, you get something that you would never get when you compose, right? Like, you, the, the improvisation and the participation of other people like leads you to create something new. And you can do that with audiences. And you can do that with audiences in ways that don't make, you know, crappy, thin, gray, over-democratized work, right? Because I'm not saying that's not a problem. Like if you just let everybody come in and cook in the kitchen, then you get you get no food, right? You get you get like just you get, you get bland food or inedible stuff, right? structures make it possible for people to participate in ways that are meaningful but controlled right that are that fit within the aesthetic so people understand what kinds of creations are possible in this space and that like is is a whole set of techniques that then allows audiences to come in completely ignorant of what you're doing and then tell a story that they helped make that is still in the aesthetic you wanted and that there's a magic to that that i think is really powerful it opens up whole new kinds of forms and it's a, a different way of engaging with the world for the audience and i think that's powerful because we haven't really seen it before right like there are some experiences like that but they tend to be very high demand on their creativity or they tend to be gatekept um or they, they're high skill based and as we move towards immersive what immersive theater can do that's i think unique independent of like digital games and larps is that they can be approachable right like like i can show up and not really know much and still participate and i think that's a space that's really powerful and then the third beat that I just have to mention all the time is that like these tickets are very expensive to these things, right? Like they charge a lot of money to get people into those things. And I think that there's, there's opportunity from a business perspective, if you can figure out the scaling. And I think pieces like you, you're seeing pieces that are starting, I'm thinking of like a piece like particle ink in Las Vegas, like, you know, which is like projection mapping and dance with in an exploratory space 
like where they're starting to figure out how to grow the audiences for those pieces in ways that don't hurt the piece. Um, and then you start looking at like genuine business models for keeping those things up. And I think that's also interesting. It's like, well, what are other business models that can keep dancers, actors, because set designers, none of those people are going away in immersive theater, right? We need all of those people. We need them the same way we need them in other forms, right? Um, and and it's a, it's a parallel skill, if not an identical skill, <laughs> right? So it's, it's we're not telling actors they're out of work, right? We, 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 we had actors in Raven, right? Like, I mean, the actor was the center of Raven in a lot of ways. Um, but that, but the actors supplemented by all of these other things to create a new form. And that is that's a form where people can explore, can, they can make choices. Um, they can feel directly engaged. Fantastic. I want to ask one more question. And that is this concept that you've brought up, uh, about state. Yes. Um, I think it's at the heart, um, both aesthetically, artistically, and techni technologically of what you do and what and where you're exploring. Can you give us a brief description of what state is and how that figures so centrally into these new performative experiences that you are building? Yeah, so state is a very basic concept from computer programming that simply means that um, that it, that an object in code can maintain information about about itself and the inputs it's received, right? Like I, I'm giving you a sloppy definition, but this is like a good way of thinking about it, right? Like I press the button and the code knows I press the button, right? And the code retains that I press the button and it can like communicate that out, right? Um, and digital stuff uses this all the time. It's it's like essentially how um, any computer program that 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 runs over a period of time and retains information works. It builds what's and and, and these are it's a, it's actually terminology from code called a state machine, right? Like a thing that maintains state and uses state to make decisions on its own structure. Um, what I think uh, like technology is enabling us to do, right? And this is like server technology, um, to some extent artificial intelligence, to a large extent Internet of Things is it's giving us the ability to do that in space, right? Like in physical space, because I can have a digital object that can retain that stuff. And so an example of this might be, if in an immersive theater piece, I want to know if you read the letter that was in the box, right? Um, I basically have to ask you or watch you read the letter, right? That's the only way I'm going to know. I can't know otherwise because I wasn't there, right? Like if, it's, if I'm in a space the size of the McKidrick and then you walk over to... McKittrick Hotel, by the way, which is the Sleep No More <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, uh, headquarters. Because um, I'm, I'm like on another floor. I have no idea if you looked in that box, right? But if in that box was a digital object that just knew you opened the letter, right? Like it just, it just sent a, a signal to a server that was like, hey, the letter opened and user 23 opened the letter. If I have a headset on the, on the, on the second floor and you show up in the room, if the room knows that user 23 entered the room, which it could very easily know, um, this is all stuff that technology could do very easily right now. It could send me a signal that's like, user 23 has read the letter. And I could have two scripts in my head that are like, you didn't read the letter, you did read the letter. And I could change my script. And again, that's like magic, right? Because you won't see anything. You'll just walk in the room. And then when I come in the room, I was like, so you saw what Anne said, right? And 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 suddenly, like the piece knows who you are and can and trust you a little bit. That like gives you kind of some kind of magic about how you can work. And so I think 
what I looked at when I got my MFA, right, which I which I got in design technology, and I focused on things like immersive theater and escape rooms and thinking about technology that could be used in them. What I landed on was this idea that like once we have computers in everything, which is where the world is heading, right? Everything will have state. And if everything has state and can communicate state, that means that we in these aesthetic pieces can just pass information around about the things that have happened. And the whole set can change based on the things people do. And so that means the, that I can use your interactions in a more meaningful way because I can track them in a way I couldn't have before. Now, I want to, I use the example I use for a reason and I want to highlight it. I can't really know you read the letter. I know you opened the letter, right? Like, like there's going to be these border cases where we have to be really smart about design. Like, I can't know what's in your head. I have to interpret that through something you did that I can track, right? That's, that's how the technology works. But the design of these pieces comes about when I start thinking about how I can map your experience to what the technology can do. Because when I can do that, then I can use the technology to read your choices. And that is very powerful. I think that's, and that's like where the value of state comes in. If everything can, can essentially track how you behaved in the choices you've made in a piece, then everything can respond to those choices. And I don't need like an actor on every person or a post-show interview or something to figure out how you've done what you've done. Of course, I just said the word track a lot. Um, and I know that that's typically seen as a creepy thing. <laughs> um, and I don't want to deny that, like as someone who's very like, you know, like like believes in in electronic freedom and and thinks a lot about, you know, like digital rights. Like, yeah, we should be concerned about that. But like, we often don't think about what the positive side of these things are. We don't, we never really think about why these things exist or what they're good for. And I think this is a really good case of that where like, yeah, if I can see the actions you did through digital interaction, I can build work that responds to you automatically. And I, I just I just want to ask the audience to think about like, well, what could you do if you knew that was true? Right? If you knew you could map the audience choices, what could you make? So, so Nick, all of these um, changes that you're seeing and um, desires for this for this kind of um, technologically seamless um, environment in which performance might take place. Do you see the training of actors or the writing of scripts by playwrights or how we think about sonography or how we think about soundscapes or how we think about lighting and any of the other kind of elements that make up what we understand performance, do you see those changing in interesting ways that respond to the kinds of um, future ideas about how performance is going to happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, all, all of those things. There are going to be new forms of all of those things that are going Thought, to any, th any Any specific thoughts? Oh, any yeah. Specifics, well, for example? Yeah, well, like acting, for example, acting, like this, this kind, the acting in these kinds of cases has a lot more improvisation in it, right? Like it's, it's much more deeply based in that kind of improvisation, but it's also a lot about vulnerability. And this is something that like, uh, like uh, I'm just going to riff off of a, a designer and um, writer and actor that I know Char Simpson would talk about. Uh, Char was part of the blackout um, uh, haunted house for many years, right? And Char talks very much about how they created vulnerability and that the creation of vulnerability was really important, right? And so that becomes like, that's a different way of thinking about acting, right? Like is creating vulnerability in an audience member you're sitting across from. 
that's like a different way of thinking about it. But also the idea that an audience member might ask you your favorite color and you need an answer that seems natural. That's like a more role-playing kind of acting than I think some actors are trained in. Of course, some actors are good at that. Writing-wise, right? You don't know what's going to happen, right? So you can't write a script the way you would normally write a script. It has to have some variation in it. You have to think about it more like story world building, right? And and just like how you how you kind of think through the problems of an exploratory space. Um, I think, you know, directing changes because I don't know when we're going to hit this moment or I don't know what perspective I'm going to be coming from in this moment, right? So I have to think differently about that too. And you see that in, in digital games, right? Like, Digital games will sometimes have cutscenes that are very filmic, but they'll also have scenes where users can walk around and watch what's happening, which is why when we talk about VR, we talk more about immersive theater, right? Because the viewpoint is not singular, right? It's, it, it is a multiple viewpoint environment. So I'm thinking about it more from that perspective. But that, I think it cuts both ways, right? So, then, so now when I think about theater in the round again, that's not a new form, but yeah, but it did this, right? It solved this problem. So maybe VR should look at theater in the round and then learn some lessons for like how you keep an audience's attention in a broad space. And in fact, if we're getting that big. Maybe we think we think about station-based theater, right? Where people are really like just drifting over a whole plaza while they're there and engaged in an experience. And that's, that's, I think the big lesson is that like, well, yeah, like are these forms going to change acting and, and, and writing and directing and set design? Sure. Of course they are because the affordances of the audience are going to be different and that's going to lead to different outputs. But it's not like all this stuff we just made up because the technology came along, right? We yeah. had happenings, we had station-based theater, right? We had rituals. We certainly had rituals. Oh, you had rituals. I mean, I'm just thinking about <laughs> I'm just thinking about the Ram Leela, which I participated in in India many, many, many decades ago in Varanasi. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. That yeah, is that a 40-day, is... <laughs> 40-night event that is played out over the entire city and in which the residences the residents of of the inhabitants of that city take on the roles but it's literally talking about performance and this is the whole city becomes an immersive ritual and uh, religious space um so there are absolutely precedences that you know we're talking you know centuries old that we can draw upon i'm just thinking i was just thinking when i asked you that question i was thinking about the kind of pedagogical you know, needs of how theater is changing in all these universities and colleges and what they're teaching and mm -hmm. what becomes interesting historically to look at in terms of these new forms that are becoming more and more dominant um, in our culture. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, what I teach, I, you know, I teach um, uh, immersive immersive and dynamic narrative and I teach it in, in the way that, you know, we've been talking about, like this very broad, like, cut across medium. Media does not matter in the for the purpose of this class. That's not what it's about. It's about um, the tropes that the media use and how those things relate. And then you see this in disciplines like narratology, right? Where people are really like coming at narrative from lots of different directions and trying to figure out how stories get told. And I think that that there's a space to start thinking about that, you know, in, insofar as it goes. And I, and I think it often is, and, and I guess this is another point that's just very important to me, it is in the intersection of these forms too, right? Because you're not going to get immersive theater from theater alone because there's a bunch of pieces that theater doesn't really know about interaction design and about, about this like sort of multiple viewpoint, about the pacing for that, all that kind of stuff, right? But, it's, but you know, and games understand that, but games don't understand what theater's good at, right? We, we do not understand how you create 
scenes the way you create scenes. We don't understand how you create dramatic power that way. We don't understand like the value of liveness, frankly, right? And like what that brings. And some of that we can get from LARPs, but LARPs aren't theater either, right? So, so it really is in the intersection of all of these fields, right? And I think that part of what's happening is that a lot of the stuff that gets created right now is created from, from the silos from which it came um, and it's, it's not really the connection of all of these people. I think more of this is happening. You're seeing escape rooms, you know, get more theatrical. I think it's too slow, like way too slow. We could have, we could have gotten where we are five years ago and we could be five years ahead of where we are right now. Right. But, um, but you're starting to see some of that thinking happen. You're starting to see like immersive pieces that are bringing some game-like elements into them. You're starting, you, you can have conversations with people about VR where you talk about, you know, like like digital games and they don't scoff, right? Like like you're, you're it's getting better, right? All around, but I think that that the interdisciplinary nature of it that focuses again on the, the ideas of interaction and affordance and how those relate to storytelling that changes the orbit of everything. And then the skills that people have been learning, like the acting skills, the writing skills, the directing skills, the set design skills, the costuming skills, they all have a place, right? They're all going to be there. They're just going to circle around a different sun. Right. And that son is this audience member who can change what you do. Right. Uh, mm. and that's, yeah. That's different. Space. I like that. Nick, I think this is a good time to stop. Um, also, just to thank you. Um, thank you for our all of the conversations that we've had. I look forward to working with you in the future. I think you're a really important thinker and maker. And I think you bring a lot of insight into um, a lot of new experiments and research in the future of performance and, and thinking about these things. Thank you so much. No, no, Wayne, thank you. I appreciate that, that there are people like you that, that are thinking about these problems and working in these problems, like with your own, you know, wonderful work and, uh, and that, that, you know, podcasts like this exist to uh, have these conversations because I, I, you know, I, I look forward to a really bright future because there's other people like you in it. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye.